This is episode three alpha of Free as in Freedom. Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. So we've gotten, uh, we're, episode, we're three episodes into the Fosdom uh, talks, and, and uh, things have been going a little more slowly than we had hoped uh, as far as yeah. getting things out. We're, we're all volunteers here, and, and, and Dan Dan did that uh, uh, Linux Outlaws Live, and it's hard for me to complain that he uh, took time out for that because they donated the proceeds to Conservancy. Oh, so that's I, super I, awesome. <laughs> I can't really complain that they took that's time out to great. do that. That's um, so, great. So Thank and, you, Dan and, and Fab. Yeah, and as, as you might guess, doing a live event, it, it it takes a lot of time uh, when you organize a live event, so so we didn't hear from Dan yeah. for a while after the you know before and after the live event, which is totally understandable because those things take such effort to coordinate and organize. Yeah, absolutely. So I hope people understand. I've actually had occasion to see a few listeners in person recently. I think Bradley, you probably have too, and uh, it's been a funny thing trying to explain to people. Like, I'm sorry, the episode's coming. There's something more coming. So thank you for being patient. And, and, and also, this, this editing we've put forward to Dan is more complicated than what we usually give him uh, because we've got these recordings we did. We did it on a recording device. Obviously, we used a device that he recommended, but we never used it before, and we probably didn't place it in the best possible place in the room. And, and, so, and so he's had to do extra work to sort everything out and get the audio working. He's awesome. So, so, so now we're moving through, and, and this is the third uh, talk of the FOSDEM track back and in February. This talk is, I mean, a lot of the talks are great, but this talk is really great. Well, it, it's interesting, because on the, on the plane ride uh, home, uh, Richard Fontana said to me, you really need to listen to Gabe's talk. He, he said, this is uh, Gabe Holloway, mm-hmm. who's a law firm lawyer, giving a talk. Yeah, we just looked up his, uh, his affiliation, because uh, we we're so impressed with his perspective that we wanted to know sort of where he was coming from professionally and uh, we're surprised, I guess, to see that he seems to be at a law firm. Uh, yeah, and, and the only reason we're surprised about that is because, uh, you know, I listened to the talk not having read his bio. I, I was out of the room yeah, at the time. Yeah, me too. And, uh, yeah, so neither of us were in the room, so we didn't see him. We didn't meet him. I, I didn't see him at all at the conference, actually. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to meet him, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, so I listened to the talk just on the audio. I just had it on my, uh, my, uh, my, my, uh, my HTC Dream, just playing it, walking around. And so I heard the talk basically not knowing, uh, only having read the proposal initially that he had sent in. And it sounded like a talk from a basically a free software activist uh, who mm-hmm. happened to be a lawyer, and yeah. um, and so so he's it sounded out- like a talk from someone yeah. at SFLC or someone you know someone who's whose law career had taken them somehow, yeah. or maybe even somebody in house at a company who cared a lot about doing the right thing. Well, it was, clear, and it was clear that Gabe was involved with free software. First of all, he said free software, not open source, yeah. <laughs> which was very interesting. And, and you'll hear that in his talk that's coming up. And, and so, so he was already involved with the free software movement, it sounded to me, before he went to law school, before he became a lawyer. You know, it looks like he probably did undergraduate in, in computer science or, or was doing computer science as an undergraduate in some way. So he was already uh, involved in free software before that. And, and he really, he really uh, I, I think Karen, uh, you made the point to me that he came at this from a principled perspective as opposed to just a legal yeah, perspective. Yeah, it really it sounded like someone who came at this from a principled perspective. And you, 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 when you listen to it, see what you think. Um, and I guess we'll talk about it 
afterwards yeah so so this is gabe this is gabe's talk and and for all these uh we haven't mentioned in the previous two episodes but we we will try our best to get the slides tom marble is doing a great job trying to collect the slides from everybody still as we record this he's trying to thank and applaud tom marble in every episode yeah well yeah tom does most of the work for this track it's it's the four of us it's me and karen and tom and richard fontana but but uh, but every year uh, tom marble does the the two years now tom marble does uh, the the ninety percent of the work of organizing the track basically, yeah. and basically all the other three of us do is read all the proposals and and help decide what the order of the you know of actually just who's accepted. Even Tom did even the order, yeah, so we, we just decided who's accepted. We talk and agonize over various other matters that come up over yeah. the course of uh, of dealing with the um, with the track, but uh, but yeah, Tom does everything. Yeah, so um, so so he's still collecting the slides from everybody, and so and so every time we have the slides, they they will be on the website, uh, the FAIF.us website. But uh, I listened to everything up till now, including Gabe's talk that you're about to hear. I listened to it all without slides. I didn't have any problem yeah, hearing without slides. Yeah, I listened to slides. it without slides too, and I forgot that I didn't have slides because yeah, so, it didn't seem necessary. So, so I, I, I mean, I think that's why I didn't mention in the previous episodes you about the slides possibly being available because I think the talks were okay without the slides. So, uh, so enjoy uh, Gabe's talk and here's, we'll come back after. Here's Tom introducing Gabe. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Gabe Holloway. I'm a attorney from the United States, and what I'm speaking today about is what I think is an emerging and likely to be, in some areas, a persistent problem in the cloud provider space. Which, uh, and I'll unpack this in more detail as we walk through, and then leave, if possible, ample time for questions and discussion. But but that emerging problem is essentially uh, public cloud services and providers that are using free software essentially as the basis of their service offering but they're essentially sandboxing it or locking it up inside of a cage where the software comes in under free and open source terms and it never really is permitted under both technical and in many cases contractual restraints to exit that environment um, and I think for, for, for a lot of uh, for, for a lot of reasons that um, are, are obvious to this audience, that that can be kind of a persistent harm to the larger communities that are developing that software. So, so, so let's start with kind of the concept here. Um, and and I, I guess I'm going to just use a, a use case. Is is those of you in the room that are familiar with with Amazon's Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2? Can you raise your hand? Yeah, I I, I think um, I'm going to pick on Amazon a little bit, not because they're unique, but because we're all familiar with them. Uh, many of us have Amazon user accounts, and we've used EC2. And in particular, what, what, what I'd like to focus on is their um, Amazon machine image, or what they call the, the, the Amazon Linux AMI. Um, and, and for those of you that, that have used um, EC2 and you've ever gone through their setup wizard, in other words, you, you want to provision a new account, you'll see this is essentially the default option. In other words, if you start a virtual machine, this is what they present to you by default. This is a custom Linux distro um, maintained by Amazon, uh, you know, and approximately 
1,200 to 1,500 packages in addition to, 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 the, uh, to, to kind of the core of the distro that, that are also maintained by Amazon that um, is, is, uh, is provided for use on their cloud is essentially <coughs> de facto option. Um, and it's, you know, and this is going to sound like we're really picking on Amazon a fair amount, but I do want to emphasize this is not unique, though it's also not a problem across all areas of the cloud. There are certainly um, cloud service providers who are traditional Linux systems vendors or Linux developers that are, you know, beautifully open about what's going on in their cloud, about making that code available to the public and the communities at large. But, but I do think, uh, given the, the you know, influence of Amazon and some of these other more closed public cloud services, we're going to, we see this across a number of different sectors. So let's think a little bit about what these actual restrictions are. And I'm going to place them into two categories. Uh, the first set of restrictions and the ones that, that I suspect many of the audience members will have encountered are the technical restrictions. Um, and, and these are essentially tools or mechanisms that are built into the design of the cloud or the way in which um, you know, the, 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 the machine images are managed and the source code for those machine images that keep them locked within the Amazon domain or Amazon running instances or the domains of whatever the, the, the other cloud providers are. Um, and, and so, uh, what, 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 I, what, what I'd like to, 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 to think a little bit about here, and I'm going to quote a little bit from, from Amazon's own FAQ, and if you look at some of the other service providers, you will see similar things in their FAQs, or in many cases when this question comes up in, in user forums, but quote, the Amazon Linux API is only available for use inside Amazon EC2. So the idea here is that you've got you know, a system image, a machine image, um, it's customized a little bit. There are folks that are more technical in this audience that um, have told me that it's essentially, it's, it's uh, a Zen-based image with some, you know, some, some, some modifications to the way in which it's loaded and unloaded. But the, the idea here in the FAQ is, you know, this lives and it's tied in to, to the service. Um, perhaps more importantly for, for this audience, um, sources available for nearly all parts of this image. But the command line tool provided, quote, in the Amazon Linux AMI enables viewing of source code inside Amazon EC2. This, you know, think a little bit about this. I mean, this is essentially a source depot that's designed to live within a, you know, a virtual cloud environment. So it's a distributed, in some sense, networkly, network available uh, source, you know, source depot that um, in some ways is very unique, that it's designed to only be accessed within that limited sandbox. Um, you know, I can't really think of another uh, system or service um, where, where it's almost as if it's a distributed network depot that's designed not to be cloned and accessible remotely. Um, and other than, than, you know, with some of my clients that are dealing with, with remote vendors or doing development work where they have things that they're trying to keep private or non-public, those are the only other situations where, where, where I've seen something like that. Um, and what, what the other thing that's interesting from a technical constraint with this system is, and I don't know, have, have, have very many of you in the audience actually tried to check source code out of some of these, these, these public uh, 
cloud-facing infrastructures, um, it, it's, it's a level of almost aggressively uh, negative user interface. Um, and, and what I mean by that is the model is you check one source package out at a time, you authenticate with your username, you exchange a key that was issued to you by the cloud service provider, presumably so they can, I, I don't know, track um, who are, who's making the requests, how often these requests are happening, that they aren't necessarily happening in, in, in batch. Um, and then you, you, you pull that package, you're able to examine it. You're, you're even, um, I, I guess, the, and we'll get to the contractual restrictions in, in these agreements, but you're, you're even maybe even in, encouraged to, to rebuild that, though um, you, know, you may lo no longer have support for that package if you need to make a modification or trouble, troubleshoot a, a bug. Um, but the, 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 the idea here is, is, is really a technical mechanism to make source not only not publicly available, but also to, to restrict its usage within narrow technical constraints. Um, and, and, and I think as a practical matter, uh, you know, I first ran into this as a user of a couple of these cloud systems wanting to troubleshoot something and basically being confused by the lack of documentation as to why I couldn't you know, request a source package without providing my key and going through a lot of authentication routines. And, and so, um, you know, I, I started to dig in a little bit further and, and talk to some other folks who, who are in this space and, and then also examine some of the contractual restrictions. And, and what I mean by that are essentially the legal restrictions um, that, that are in the service agreement that I'm sure almost none of us in this audience read. I mean, so, some, of, some of the lawyers may, but... Um, and, and not to pick on Amazon again, because I think that, that their service agreement actually is one of the more permissive service agreements in the space of kind of public cloud providers. Um, that, that, you know, that being said, it's still pretty horrifying um, from, from a free software perspective. Um, meaning that, and, and this is going to be a, a, a lot of legalese, but it's, it's it really is reflective of something. Um, I'm sure some of the attorneys in this audience will may admit to, or at least I will admit to, which is when you don't really know how legal risks are going to play out around a client's offering or solution, you often end up punting the problem down the road a little bit. And in this context, that means you reserve a lot of rights. You have this huge reservation of rights, and you give a pretty limited license. Um, but but in essence, what what the, the Amazon um, terms of use and, and their customer agreement asks, uh, which is, is, as I said, uh, you know, more permissive in my experience than many of the others in this space, is, is they grant you a limited, revocable, uh, non-exclusive, non-sub-licensable, non-transferable license to access and use the term solely in accordance with this agreement. You, ret you, you retain no rights or obligations under this agreement from us or the licensors, including any intellectual property rights. Um, you know, that's, I would characterize that as a very broad, you know, in a license there's a very broad reservation of rights. Um, and then, then where things become even more troubling when you combine the, the technical inaccessibility of these source repositories is, is the license restrictions. Um, and these are, are, are so long, uh, you know, I, I had, had printed out the license restrictions, but they were, you know, a couple of pages. And so I'm just going to cherry pick a few 
that, um, like I said, these are pretty friendly license restrictions in the space, but, but they're still uh, uh, quite burdensome. Neither you nor any end user may or may attempt to modify, alter, tamper with, repair, create derivative works of any software included in the surface offering. It's a broad carve-out for things that Amazon may actually distribute to you under an open source license, meaning if they publish an API on Amazon.com, you may also not reverse engineer, disassemble, decompile the service offerings, apply any other process or procedure to derive the source code of any software included in the service offerings, um, and then a, a lot of other legalese. And then perhaps um, what I think is, is, is almost, uh, I don't want to say shocking because it's common in the proprietary or commercial software field is there's a very broad non-assert. Um, which in some ways I think actually ties back into our license compliance panel this morning. At least for all of you that have raised your hand saying that, that you use EC2 or, or the Amazon AMI, by using um, you know, EC2 you are agreeing that during and after the term, you know, during your use of the service or after the term of the service, you will not assert, you will not authorize, assist, or encourage any third party to assert against Amazon or any of its affiliates, customers, vendors, business partners, <coughs> licensors, any patent infringement or any other intellectual property infringement claim regarding any of the software on the service offerings. So if you're a copyright holder, as, as I suspect a number of folks in this room and at this conference are, um, in some of the software that's being used by Amazon within this uh, sandbox cloud environment, you're essentially agreeing not to assert your license or enforce your, your copyright rights against them if they're in non-compliance. Um, and <coughs> maybe just to reset for a moment, um, you know, why does this seem wrong? If, if this is the emerging model of, of at least the, the public cloud. Um, you know, and I'll get to in a moment, well, is this enforceable, even if it's wrong? Um, you know, can you do this? Uh, and I think there are some in interesting legal questions around that. Um, but first of all, I, I guess maybe at a gut instinct, it just feels very unfair. Um, this audience, it feels unfair too, but I think there are a lot of audiences it, it, you know, who, who, who are, are, are less passionate about free software that it also feels unfair to. Because what we're talking about here is essentially um, infrastructure as a service offerings, meaning that these are products that are sold to us or to our you know, clients or customers as being the equivalent of bare metal but off running on some sort of utility computing infrastructure. And if you were to take this you know, out of the cloud space and into the physical realm, meaning if, if I approached you as someone you know, selling you some hosting, some hosting solution and I say, okay, here's your physical computer. There is also an operating system that you can install on that physical computer, it's Linux. Or here is a stack of Linux plus database images plus server images. Here are a thousand, two thousand copyleft license packages. I hand those off to you, um, which is basically the virtual equivalent of what we're talking about here. And I say to you, listen, go ahead, run those things, modify them. Um, you know, I'm even going to give you the source code. You know, on those disks that you that that, that you've you know, that you can install on this machine, but don't 
dream, um, and I'm going to uh, of taking that source code out, and I'm going to basically put a, a little device to monitor whether or not you've extracted that source code. <coughs> I, I think many of us would be back at the compliance panel earlier today saying, well, you know, isn't that a violation of, of the GPLv2 or other copyleft licenses that those packages may be under? Um, and isn't this a situation where we've had a distribution and um, after that distribution, someone has imposed additional restrictions upon the materials I have received that are, uh, you know, a violation of the underlying copyleft license. Um, and, and I guess, w w in some measure, why this feels wrong to me is we're, 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 the distinction between the physical scenario and the cloud scenario, where you you know, upload your virtual image or you run a virtual image in the cloud, it's very thin, I think, to a lot of developers or a lot of system administrators. It's just a choice of where do I get my resourcing from? Do I run that computer, you know, in my own data center or do I outsource that data center to someone else? Um, and, and so I, I think that there's a fundamental um, fairness question. Uh, the, the other thing that to me feels um, wrong about this, or at least at odds with, with principles of, 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 of software freedom, is, is at least in part, and I have to speculate here, it, it also seems like this is being done for purposes, for business purposes, of vendor lock-in and for lack of portability. I mean, why aren't these images available to be run locally on your machine? I could certainly think of another a number of good use cases where it would be beneficial for me to run one of these images on a local machine to do testing, to you know stage deployments. Yes, I've got some transaction costs in uploading these images back into the cloud, but the, the, you know the main reason, from, from my point of view, that, that I think many of these images are are less than portable, um, and that there are these technical and contractual restrictions on moving them, is because. Um, the entities that are selling these services or providing these services uh, don't want the software to move, despite the fact that they're benefiting from um, software that, 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 that was developed under the, the ethos of, of free software um, development. And, it, you know, it really comes back to, to, to one of, I, I guess, the, the, um, the, the, the principles of of, of, of what I wanted to present to you, which is what good is complete and corresponding source in the cloud, you know, uh, freedom one, if, if it's in a sandboxed proprietary environment where you're essentially denied use of it outside that environment and you're lacking freedoms one, two, and three. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not just an issue of, of keeping code out of the commons, which I think is a um, is is a uh, is obviously a, a problem. Um, but it's also an issue of I, I think that there's at least um, when I first encountered this, there was a gut reaction. Well, you know, this must just be something of convenience, meaning that um, these are only minor or trivial modifications. So what's the harm to the commons? I, I know for a lot of ethical reasons, there's a harm just in not working upstream, it's a bad business decision. But, um, you know, I, I may be, uh, unfortunately, you know, 
one of the few people curious enough to go out and query a fairly strong sampling of some of these packages within these environments. And, you know, yes, many of them essentially appear to be taken from upstream sources, but the ones that are most critical, the ones that are most performance-driven, the ones that, um, you know, service providers are soliciting bugs and getting user feedback, you know, in other words, the ones that have pain points that work is getting done on them, they're, in those packages, there are not necessarily trivial modifications. Um, there are not necessarily, you know, just consumption of the upstream upstream projects. Um, and, and, and I think, um, you know, if left unchecked, and if the business case for contributing upstream um, is unable to be made to certain of these certain of these cloud service providers. This can have a pretty destabilizing impact across even those upstream projects, um, be, because what, what we have uh, and and um, you know I was in full disclosure I was one of the complete skeptics on the Afero GPL and, and and the AGPL V3. I, I thought the whole ASP loophole was kind of you know we were worrying about all sorts of things that were never going to happen. Why are we spending so much time on this? There was it, so much sort of um, anger and consternation about this as, as a problem where it didn't seem to be an active bug in the software communities or in the legal communities around, around free software. Um, but, but, but I think uh, in, in a world, and, and I'm really glad there's, there's an AGPL v3 um, panel later today uh, who, who I, I suspect will be talking about some of this, but in a world where, where, where the AGPLv3 is largely being adopted, in my view, for the wrong reasons rather than, than the sort of ethical reasons to adopt the AGPLv3. In other words, it's a stick rather than a carrot. Um, you know, this is a compelling reason to adopt it for, 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 for reasons of, of software freedom. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I've talked a little bit about why this is happening, but I, I want to maybe play a little bit of devil's advocate um, as someone who who, uh, uh, who advises a wide range of clients. You know, why would service providers of public clouds choose to take this model? I mean, given you know we've got a lot of believers obviously in this room around the the efficiency and the benefits of contributing upstream rather than taking narrow forks and keeping them private. Well, well one I suspect is, um, is the, the lower surface area for discoverability. Meaning, you know, if you're a competitor of Amazon or some of these other uh, uh, cloud providers and you want to know what's going on in their system, it's, it's nearly impossible to do so under both the legal agreements and some of these <coughs> technical restrictions. And it's basically impossible to take some of these modifications or changes that have been made and port them to other situations um, or, or other environments or, or, or cloud stacks. Um, the, the other thing that, that I would call out, because I, I know that it's, it's a real factor um, in the United States, uh, though, though less so here, here in Europe, thankfully, um, is the more information you expose on the web, especially for some of these big services, the more um, surface area you present for patent lawsuits. Meaning, the easier your code is to find if you're one of these commercial service offers, um, the you know, wider customer base you have, the 
more likely it is someone is going to be able to easily dig in and a you know a patent troll or a competitor um, is going to be able to leverage you know a US patent against your service in a way that, that, that that's disruptive um, the, the other thing that I think may be a, a factor um, especially uh, coming back again to, to, to this morning's compliance panel is this approach essentially imposes on these commercial cloud providers zero compliance costs I, I mean they don't have to the reason, just to be clear, that much of the source code is available for, for many of these packages inside of the cloud environment isn't for compliance reasons, which you often see at least be a, you know, a, a material factor in a lot of other traditional Linux vendor scenarios. It's because it's really good because the customers want the code for certain of these packages because they may have changes that they need to make or they may have bugs that they want to, to check. In other words, it's being provided within the sandboxed environment with no means to really extract technically or legally um, only because that's necessary in order to use the system, not because it's a compliance issue. And, and, and so as a practical reason, I suspect it wouldn't take a great deal of effort actually to go from that environment where most of the source is being provided inside of a sandbox to something that is, you know, if it was publicly available, would be, um, you know, compliant in terms of source availability obligations. Um, but it means that no one has to pay attention to those issues. Um, you know, the, the legal departments in these cloud service offers and the release managers um, no longer have to go through that, that checklist and, and manage that life cycle of compliance, which um, I, I think is often perceived as, as a significant, um, how should I put it, a significant investment and, and distraction by, by many development teams. Um, and lastly, I mean, not to sell my own tribe out, lawyers are, are just kind of paranoid about new models of, you know, the, the cloud is relatively new as, you know, the conversion of software that does real things rather than just be, you know, a, a, a dumb access mechanism to a to a application as a service you know infrastructure as a service is is, is a relatively new model and um, as, as someone who has struggled to advise clients who are using cloud services or maybe offering private clouds in in some situations we have no good idea or guidance about how to approach some of these legal issues which you know brings us back to to, to one of the, the points I was making earlier our temptation is basically just to punt these issues, to, 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 to let them, to kick the can down the road and say, okay, I'll I'll, I will reserve as many rights for my client as I can, and I will give as few rights contractually as I can get away with for my customers, uh, meaning that many of them won't read this carefully, if they do read it carefully, it's likely because they have a large legal department and maybe we'll specifically negotiate something with them. Um, but, you know, the, the average customer will, 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 will just take these terms as they're presented to them. Um, I, I, I think perhaps to, to at least the attorneys um, here, one of the, the most interesting questions here is, is this an enforceable set of constraints? meaning under the relevant copyleft licenses, um, is it enforceable? Under uh, uh, common law, 
um, are the contractual restrictions that, that have been placed by many cloud service providers onto their consumers enforceable. Um, and and uh, first of all, I'll, I'll just come out and, and tell you what, what, what I think. I won't, I won't quibble, but I, I'm dead certain that there will be differences of opinion among many of the, 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 the attorneys, and I will quibble around EU and EC law <laughs> because I'm uh, uh, more, more ignorant in that area than, than, than I would probably like to admit. Um, but, but let's assume that there's no AGPLv3. Um, and I can tell you from, from accessing um, two or three of these cloud services and kind of running through some of their license packages, either there's a scary coincidence that they just haven't used AGPLv3, or they likely have some sort of blacklist policy. I mean, if, if I was operating a system in this way, that would be at least one, you know, one thing I, I would watch out for if I was trying to, to kind of exploit um, this this hack of, of some of the older licenses, but but I think I at least under the GPLv2 um, in U.S. law, uh, my my view is uh, this is probably okay, unfortunately, um, and uh, I you know I, I've I've been chatting with some friends and colleagues about this um, emerging issue in the cloud space, and, and I wouldn't say that there's necessarily, there's a consensus that, that it shouldn't be okay, that it feels wrong and in violation of free software principles, but, um, you know, if, if, there's no, if there's no transfer of a copy, in other words, if the technical restrictions work unerringly, um, and if the transfer of the cop copy is not done at the volition of the service provider, in other words, someone has to do a very elaborate hack to route around these technical protection mechanisms, um, you know, th 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 this is, is likely not, uh, is something that, that is, um, <laughs> is, is, is permitted under the, the GPLv2. Um, under the GPLv3, you know, I, I think, at least in the United States, um, the arguments are, are, are largely the same. Um, and and I, I know we have folks in the audience who, who are, who were very deeply involved in the drafting of that license, but at least the original stated intent was that, that there was, you know, really supposed to be no difference between the distribution um, in the GPLv2 versus v3, and there's the clause um, in the text of the GPLv3 that the mere interaction without the transfer of a copy um, is not conveying. I have talked to some colleagues in, in Europe, and, and, and hopefully someone will, I will solicit comments during the question section uh, from some of our, our European colleagues who have told me that, that they think that there might be some interesting corner cases um, in, in under GPLv3 in, in Europe in, in particular um, because uh, under the GPLv3, propagation includes not only copying and distribution, um, but also making available to the public. And that, um, uh, that, that's a concept that we don't really have under U.S. law. The, 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 um, you know, in the European Union, there's the copyright law, as I understand it, distinguishes between the reproduction right, which is roughly equivalent to, to our U.S.-based distribution right, and the, the right to communicate to the public or, or to make available to the public, which um, is at least specifically intended to cover certain publication scenarios and transmissions across the internet. Um, and, and, and 
I, I, you know, it's probably not, it may not have been the intent of the GPLv3, but, but I have at least one, um, one, one attorney uh, in, in Europe who has argued to me that, um, you know, that the trigger for making available in Europe may be much more passive than that in the United States. In other words, essentially providing a public-facing surface uh, or, or, or service with, with each of these, um, you know, with, with all of these components and the source code for them, and if it's possible to technically effectuate a transfer out of that environment, um, you know, maybe uh, enough of a making available or, or a communication to the public to at least argue on this point. Um, like I said, I, I'm still not sure that, that at least in the United States, you know, we don't have that same line of, 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 of copyright, um, uh, copyright principles. Um, and, and the GPL v3 also says that, um, you know, uh, propagation, which is, 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 is the further hook for conveyance, uh, must be an act that without permission would make you directly or, or, or secondarily liable for, for, for copyright infringement. And I, and I do think, um, you know, this is maybe one of the reasons that cloud service providers are contractually restricting um, these, the, these issues, because if they contractually restrict it and you, you do manage technically to pull it out, um, they may not be engaging in an act that would make them, uh, certainly, I, in my view, not primarily liable um, for infringement and likely not contributorily liable or secondarily liable in the United States. Um, I mean, this is a far tangent, um, but uh, I, this is probably the most sophisticated free software legal um, uh, you know, group of attendees I, I've ever been amongst, so I figured why not um, <laughs> touch on it. I, I, I think um, as a practical matter, I, this, in my view is um, the, the, the fact that, that some of these questions around the cloud are, are probably a little, um, a, a little closer or, or, or a little tougher in the EU means that I think EU law will actually be driving how far um, these cloud service providers and others can exploit the, the, the you know, some of these, what, what we would call bugs now in, in or many of us at least, in, in the GPLv2. Um, and and the, another thing that, that, that I'm also, um, you know, I don't know how much of this is ill will, I don't know how much of it is ignorance, um, but, but it, it does result in, 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 I think, a in my view at least, in a community harm for these upstream projects. And, and I'm not sure what, what good responses are, or, or at least what effective responses will be. Because, I mean, community pressure is one thing, um, but I, I'm not certain for, for certain entities that, that have been antagonistic towards free software, you know, community pressure isn't going to necessarily uh, be effective. I, I don't think business pressure, unless the costs of developing and supporting these forks becomes untenable, um, is necessarily going going to work, and, and it really does bring me back to, to I think a point I, I, I made earlier, which is um, <laughs> this this may be an instance where there are very good reasons to argue for actual migration to something like the AGPLv3, um, even though uh, th that license has not seen the sort of uptake I think a lot of its early advocates. Um, we're hoping for, and many of the adoptions have been for, for kind of icky reasons, um, it, it may be, from a lawyer's point of view, the best legal solution to this sort of problem. Um, 
that's uh, really what, what I have for you. So I, I'm happy to take uh, questions or comments <laughs> if, if there there are some. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Uh, yeah, perhaps from the perspective of a European lawyer, <coughs> I think it's not so much a question of copyright law than interpretation of the licenses. And it seems to me that interpretation is different in the US and at least in, in Europe or Germany. So for me, GPL2 does not say anything about cloud services. Uh, what we have in the GPL2 is running the program is unrestricted. And for me, uh, running the program unrestricted does not mean uh, it's in the cloud service just running, uh, but it's much closer to distribution. So to give an example from the proprietary world, if I buy a copy of uh, Microsoft Office, uh, in Europe, I don't need an additional license for Microsoft. Running the program is allowed by, by copyright law. But if I put that software in the cloud and allow people mm -hmm. against some money to use uh, Excel and they can, can, can use it, of course, that's much more. That's much more. I need a license for that. And the question is, where does a license come from? And if I ask this question to the GPL, I would say, hmm, I need to have an interpretation because there is nothing like making available in the GPL from the wording. And if I say yes, it is allowed because the idea of the license is to, to, to allow any use of the software, what is correct, then I have to look, but what are the obligations? Mm -hmm. Is the intention of the license no obligation or to provide the source code? And I would say it's not just running internally, but in many cases, if customers use the software in the cloud, it's, it's, a, it's similar distribution, you have to provide the source code. But that's my personal uh, opinion, it's my interpretation. Uh, on the other side, GPL3 and AGPL3 are clear about that, then because it's connected to the word conveying, and uh, conveying is transferring a copy, that's a definition of the license, and that's mostly not happening, and then in under GPL3 you have not to provide the source code. That's, that's why if I have a client who want to be sure that in the cloud the source code has to be provided, I recommend HGPL3. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's the only way to, 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 to make certain of this is AGPLv3. But I, I, you know, uh, what's really fascinating about that, that comment to me as a U.S. lawyer is that, um, you know, I, I agree there is more, I wouldn't say complete clarity, but there is more clarity uh, under this sort of scenario, certainly in the AGPLv3 and arguably in the GPLv3. But to, to view the, the GPLv2 because of issues of license interpretation, as perhaps having a broader set of requirements even than the standard GPLv3 um, is is something that, that, that I think, um, at least in my experience, the U.S. bar hasn't been, you know, hasn't, um, it, it's not their perspective under U.S. law. Um, in, in, any, any other questions or comments? Um, yes. It seems like uh, what you were saying was that the GPL2 is not a sufficient protection to require source code because there's no active distribution. And distribution <coughs> is a trigger under GPL2 to, 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 to make things happen. 
And I'm wondering, uh, what does it take to, what, what constitutes distribution? Is it just letting me, if you're giving me a copy that I'm running on a borrowed machine, to me, that, that feels like distribution. Well, well, I, I think this is a, a very interesting question. Um, you know, the, the rule of thumb given by a lot of US-based lawyers um, around distribution, and distribution um, under these sets of license varies by jurisdiction, as does conveyance. I mean, consult your local lawyer. We hate saying that, <coughs> but we keep doing so. Um, but, you know, the rule of thumb in the United States is normally transfer to another party. Um, but the, the argument here is, is that, you know, all of this is being done within a single domain. I mean, it's essentially like you're, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're remotely interacting with this machine. And I do think that there's, a, there's an argument to be made, at least from a gut instinct reaction. I have so much access and control over this cloud machine. It's so similar to, you know, if I had a physical computer here, that it should be deemed to be something like a distribution. Because um, not to do so is, 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 uh, w w would be wrong and, and, and equitable. But, but I, I think under um, you know, the guidance upon which so many folks, at least in the United States, have been relying on, on GPLv2, the conventional wisdom, and even under US copyright law, uh, as long as it stays within that sandbox, um, you know, uh, it, it, the better argument is probably that it is not a distribution, that there are no source availability obligations, um, despite the fact that that, 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 seems, that, that that seems fair because, um, you know, these cloud service providers will also, in their contractual pieces, essentially ask you to agree that, hey, they won't come out and say it, hey, this is not a distribution, but they'll say, you know you are using these services, we are providing them to you, you are running them on our hardware and infrastructure, we control this. Um, essentially, they will build that um, evidence chain to demonstrate that, that, uh, that, that this is not something that's been provided to you in an unfettered way where, where it would be distribution and, and you, you have the right and ability to copy it independently. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, we, uh, for the last years, I've gotten notes that much what was previous of products and now turned to services. <laughs> so I checked my local law, mostly just checking what's different between if someone's selling me a service or someone's selling products. And from influential, mm -hmm. and from that there are a lot of rules that are blankly ignored nowadays. Because those who over the sign with the floor of someone sort of building your house, what should how, how they think of what law they that is what the law was thinking of mm -hmm. the design laws. One of those, for example, that if you're selling a service, you as a seller must have in um, some legal um, that obligations to make sure that the buyer is aware of the benefits and the cost of what you are selling. And no, no service provider is making sure legally that I'm aware what I'm actually getting, aware what actually I'm paying for. I, I, think that, I think that's a very good comment, especially about the lack of transparency of many of these services. This is what, at least in the United States, we often, or at least I refer to as kind of the collision between what, what we often think of as copyright law around these licenses and consumer protection law, as, as we would have them in the United States, which is, listen, you just can't sell this raw, raw of a deal to people without telling them that it's, you know, that, that this is what the outcome is. And transparency is the way to solve that, but, but I think we're, we're, given the infancy of these cloud services, we aren't likely 
to see much in the way of, of FAQs and, and, and to, you know, n not to pick on Amazon because I do believe other service, other cloud services are worse. It's just that we're all familiar with them. At least they're coming out and saying in their FAQ, hey, this is only for use within this cloud. Hey, the source is only available from within EC2. Um, to a certain degree, I, I respect that because um, you can know it up front and maybe it's part of uh, the, the bargain that you've engaged in. Um, but it's, um, it, it, you know, I, I don't think it, it's, it's necessarily the level of disclosure that, that we would be looking for to, to protect consumers and users and, and to let them know what's happening and, and what the trade-offs are of a product versus a service. Um, any other questions? I've got one. I, I, I think this is really strange that by just putting software in the cloud, you get to have what I might call a walled garden contract, where the walled garden contract allows subsetting rights of what I put into that box and adding additional restrictions. It's as if, if we replaced cloud with black box computer, and you put software in a black box computer, all of a sudden, I can take away freedoms one, two, and three. That seems really weird that it's possible to do that. I, I, and I think that that's why, you know, to, to a lot of folks with development backgrounds, this seems fundamentally pretty unfair. And, and ultimately, the people to blame for this, in, in part, other than the cloud service providers, are, are likely um, the, the lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and, and it's not necessarily the lawyers trying to interpret this. But it, it, it is in part. But, but it's also the fact that um, a lot of these issues that we seem to, to persistently discuss at these sort of conferences around what constitutes a derivative work under European or US law. Um, and all of these frustrating issues where attorneys appear in front of you and they say, well, consult your own attorney. Here are some broad rules of thumb, but there could be exceptions. That's a flaw. <coughs> You know, well, it, it, one could also argue it's, it's part of the, the beauty of the law, or at least lawyers are indoctrinated to believe that. Um, but from a development perspective and from a, um, a guidance perspective to large groups of communities that are relying on these licenses to essentially, um, in part, negotiate or mediate the ethical bargains that they've made between themselves and their users and larger communities, it's a big flaw. Um, and so I, I, I do, I, I do think that, you know the emergence of walled gardens in this space is, is something that um, I, I don't want to say it, it's inevitable, but but it's it seems to be happening, um, either you know probably partially through design and probably partially through ignorance. Well, let's just to build on that a, a little bit more. Maybe this isn't just about copyleft software in the cloud, maybe we could talk about copyrighted works in any walled garden. And let's take a counter example. Let's say I took some proprietary licensed music, but I put it in my shiny new pirate player. Mm -hmm. It's a pirate player. And that means I get different rights than if I were to buy this from, let's say, a music store. Would people think that's okay? <laughs> Uh, well, the, the, the law is a sad and many varied thing. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think, I, I will push back a little bit on that to say, I think fundamentally under U.S. law there is a distinction between a service and, you know, a distributed shiny disk. 
Now, whether or not ethically, as free software developers, we believe that distinction is fair, when it's being fully exploited to, 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 to the largest extent it can be, um, you know, that's probably not the case. But the, the, the fact is, is that, you know, if, if this seems wrong to you, the, the ASP loophole is probably something that is, you know, now more relevant than it was a few years ago. I, I know we're, we're approaching the end of the session. If, if there are other questions, I'm happy to chat with folks during the break, but I am hungry for lunch, as I suspect many of you are. Thank you very much. by this talk. Yeah, as we said before in our comments uh, before we played the talk, I, I think Gabe is coming at this from the view of a principal free software person. I, I, I was obviously happy to hear that he was at first skeptical about the Affaro GPL and now feels mm. that the Affaro GPL might be really important. Well, yeah, I was surprised actually at the course of the, I mean, I, I spent some time in the room, but also elsewhere since Spazdem is so crazy and there's so much going on. Um, but I'm always surprised at how often and how, how overtly people talk about the, you know, nefarious-like uses of the AGPL now um, and how that's become just sort of like a standard topic of conversation. Yeah, and there's more on that coming up in future episodes about mm -hmm. the Affaro GPL specifically. Now, it, there, there was one part of what Gabe was saying that I felt um, felt was, was slightly alarmist. Um, his view that when you connect to say an Amazon service or, or, or any other uh, of these uh, VPS style uh, cloud service, I hate the phrase cloud because I don't think it means anything, but one of these VPS type services where they deploy an operating system for you. Uh, my view is, that, so immediately you can install rsync and you can make an entire copy of the thing onto your own computer. And the fact that they give you that immediate access and ability to cut, to make a backup, in fact, they encourage you in a lot of the sites, they're like, you know, you need to back this up, and if you don't have a backup, you know, we can't assure you the data will still be there. It, they, they basically goad you into accepting, into, into, into making a copy. And my view really is that if you can rsync from the server, they, they set up a server for I you. I thought he was saying that, that that's actually not permitted. Well, I know, I know this, people who use Amazon. That, well, he, maybe he's talking about I, different I've servers. I've never used the service, so I don't know. Actually. So one of Conservancy's products sounded yeah. to me like he was saying there are technological measures in place to prevent that. I heard him saying that too, but the standard VPS you get from Amazon, I know because one of Conservancy's projects uses it. Uh, I won't say which one, but one of our projects chose to use Amazon. I, I wasn't happy about this, but that was what they were already using before they joined Conservancy, and there was no, there was no reason Conservancy could really object uh, per se. Um, actually, I'm going to talk in a minute why Conservancy may have wanted to object, uh, but we didn't. Uh, That's another thing I want to follow up on Gabe. I'll get to that in a minute. But certainly, they can make an rsync of their entire operating system off of the thing, the whole file system, they can copy it, including all the packages that Amazon installed for oh, you. See, that's news to me from what I heard Gabe say. Well, but I, I'm wondering, and, and I'm going to follow up with Gabe and talk to him in more detail, and if I get more information, we'll, we'll talk about it in a follow-up show, but, but my question for him is going to be which specific service is he talking about? Because obviously Amazon and all these other services have many different types of service. Here's a great example. Um, so I just helped a conservancy project set up a really basic web hosting account. Mm -hmm. So in that case, all they can do is copy HTML and PHP files 
to a specific directory on the system and they don't even they aren't even able to examine the binaries that are running like the PHP binary that's running the Apache binary that's running because they don't they don't have it's it's set up as a virtual host on a server that probably has lots of people's website web hosting. Right. In that case, they're not receiving distribution of Apache, they're not receiving distribution of right. PHP because they are just using a little SFTP connection to upload a few files to put them into place. So in that case, I, I would agree, they're not receiving distribution of Apache. They're not receiving distribution of any of the software that's running because they're just uploading HTML and PHP files. Uh, and then they're being but displayed I would agree with you. Out. If they can just rsync everything, then... That's distribution. That's my view. Yeah, um, I, I mean, think that he's not talking about that. Well, yeah, and, and so I want to look into this a little bit further because because uh, really the most alarming thing he said, the, the place where I was most worried about uh, was this term that he found in the Amazon things that says that copyright holders who sign yeah. up waive their rights of copyright enforcement against Amazon. And, and that's really troubling because yep. if Amazon were to violate the, and, and Gabe points this out in the talk, that if Amazon were to violate the GPL and you as a copyright holder have agreed to waive your rights. You know, so so was, imagine a busy box copyright. Now I, I'm fortunate to know that, that, uh, that, that I don't know of any non-conservancy busy back copywriters that have agreed to the Amazon terms. But if they have, right, the, the Amazon would argue in court that you agreed to these terms and therefore you can't enforce your license against them, mm -hmm. um, which is a little disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and and certainly, certainly that's a term that I think uh, ought not be in there. I think it's probably inequitable in some sense because the, the, to, to force somebody to agree not to assert their copyrights on a program you're using on every instance Honestly, I, I, I wonder, I mean, from my knowledge on enforceability, I think there are circumstances where that could be enforceable yeah. um, because, you know, these are sophisticated users and yeah. I, it's all. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think I think conservancy and, and, and for other enforcers would make the argument that, that that's it was just inequitable to ask them to agree to that. Um, and obviously so they I agree yeah. to the terms. Yeah. You know, I, so it depends. I mean, I'm, I've always been surprised at how much, you know, these terms are generally enforceable, different in different jurisdictions and mm -hmm. whatnot. But um, but yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if they wound up to be enforceable. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, my guess would be, and the other thing is, is that I, I want to also talk with Gabe in a certain amount of detail to figure out what uh, specific terms and conditions in terms of service he's looking at. Because I, I certainly know he's usually Amazon as his primary example. I know that their different services have all sorts of different terms and conditions. I think this is sort of what it's getting to is in Amazon, I don't know if you ever looked at their dashboard, but their dashboard is unbelievably complicated. The number of things you can sign up for and turn Do on and turn off. you have to read terms to sign on to, to access the dashboard? Well, sure. But the point <laughs> is, is that, is that Which then you read. within that, um, well, Tony uh, read them on our behalf, obviously, uh, and, 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 and cleared them for us. Uh, so my guess would be Conservancy hasn't agreed to that particular clause Gabe was looking at because I'm sure Tony would have flagged right, it. Right, right. Um, uh, so, so my theory is, is that Gabe's talking about a very specific service of Amazon's that has these terms and conditions. Yeah, I'm going to go over it with Gabe that, in a little more detail. That used to be me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, I, so, I, so certainly I'm going to uh, work through it with, uh, with, with Gabe and, and follow up with him about cool. this. But, I mean, this is why Fontana was telling me I, we, I needed to listen to this talk. Now, I, well, I, that's probably not the only reason Fontana told yeah. you you needed to listen to the talk. Um, well, I actually, yeah, the other, there's probably other reasons as well. Um, uh, <laughs> Hi, Richard. <laughs> uh, related to GPL enforcement, uh, his obsessions with GPL enforcement and enforceability and, and various other things that, that Gabe was talking about. Now, now I, I think, I think Gabe is focusing on Faro GPL as sort of a, 
um, it, my impression is he's looking at it as sort of an easy solution to some of this because it, it makes it much clearer that that anything you would put up on a web service like that uh, ha- has to be copyleft in, into the web service space. And I probably agree with him on that, that it would be an easy solution. For example, if, if Linux were a, a fair GPL, just mm-hmm. imagine, then Amazon wouldn't really be able to wrap any terms of service mm-hmm. of this nature around it or even try to because it would be a clear violation of, of a Pharaoh GPL because you'd be restricting uh, people's uh, right to, to modify the software and so forth. Um, so so I, I think I think that that would be uh, that, that would be an easy solution. But I, I don't think it's as dire. I, I mean, I haven't looked at the specific sat went down with Gabe and looked at the specific terms and conditions he was identifying and figured out. You know, when do they apply? When don't they apply? Which Maybe we should try to have to? a follow-up show with him. Yeah, I'm thinking we, we might. I, I want to, I mean, basically on conservancy, and this is, goes back to Fontana urging me to listen to it, on conservancy's behalf, I really want to talk to him because obviously if conservancy is using these VPS services, and, I, I, and I, the primary VPS service we use actually is Gandhi um, because uh, Gandhi was kind enough to donate a very large amount of services to conservancy um, last year. So a lot of our projects are using that because effectively it's free to them. They don't have mm-hmm. to pay for it. Um, so that most conservancy projects are now using Gandhi simply because it's, they gave it to us. <laughs> um, and we thank Gandhi for that donation. Um, but uh, I mean, we use all sorts of different VPS services. Our projects use the whole gamut of anyone you've ever heard of. There's probably one conservancy project that's using that one yeah. as a one-off. So so from conservancy's perspective, it's really important we understand this, especially given the conservancy is, is a holder of copyrights for these projects and, and in some cases, uh, and otherwise has a responsibility to these projects. We, we need to vet these kinds of issues uh, to make sure our project developers aren't giving up rights just to use a VPS hoster. I mean, yep. that's that's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy to think that you would have to give up your your rights under copyleft licenses just to use a VPS hoster. Yep. Uh, and and we could put pressure on Amazon and others to change their terms. I, I mean, that's always difficult. I think that that's kind of hopeless in most cases to try and, and pressure. Oh, a, a I don't know. I mean, I've actually been successful at doing that sometimes in the past. Um, I can think of at least one situation where I got a company to change their terms because they, they really didn't um, sit well with us. Um, with Get Home, you mean? Or? Actually, it was when I was still at SFLC, and so mm. just with the free and open source software communities. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, but I have actually started to work with, on a few things on GNOME's behalf too. Yeah, my, my general feeling is that is that you often don't have enough weight to do it. I mean, that, that this is sort of the, when we're going to talk about this in the next episode about the, the you know, everybody. Not everybody, but large numbers of people thinking that, oh, it's so hopeful we'll convince these app stores to do what we want them to do, and they'll change their terms. I, I said this last year on the app store panel at FOSDEM, and I think it continues to today, that, that it's very difficult to convince companies to change terms that, they, uh, that they've put out yeah, there. Yeah, we just need a more coordinated effort is what we need. Well, I, I, I certainly I think things like boycotts can work, The certainly. time I was able to do it was because I, I knew exactly the right people to contact. Yeah. So that that helps a lot, and, and I think boycotts have worked. I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, there was a boycott of Amazon on patent issues for many, many years, and I, I while I supported the boycott, uh, I, I didn't. I don't think it actually changed. Was the reason they changed their patent policy? Right. Um, I think that they realized that that one click. Uh, 
patent was not particularly enforceable and so they decided to stop enforcing it because it wasn't cost effective for them to enforce it i don't think anything to do with the fact that uh the fsf and others had called for boycotting of amazon for the, due to patent aggression um so, i don't know that boycotts are really that effective i think like oh i think you, they are if you get when enough you, people if you, yeah but i think it's actually it's so hard to do that that it's more effective if you positively approach a company so you should always try that first but if that doesn't work and boycotts are your yeah, but there's answer. trying to approach a company and trying really hard to approach a company. Yeah, I, I, I don't like the idea of, of uh, and I, I think Gabe sort of points at this in his talk, this idea that we should beg these companies just to do something we like and, and that we basically are have left ourselves beholden. I think part of Gabe's point is with these kinds of services, given that they're often the default for empl- deployment of online services and, and so forth, being beholden to these companies is, is a dangerous thing and and right. allowing them to set these terms and and Gabe's point I think was that they're that everybody I mean he was using kept using Amazon as an example but he was very clear to say that, that they all have very similar issues of this nature that the that, right and, and I wonder I, if he's looked at Gandhi I bet he probably hasn't because Gandhi is such a small it was one I'm of the sure reasons, he hasn't. Was the reason Gandhi gave us this big donation is because they're such a small player and it, it you know the fact that I would say they gave us a big donation is a big deal to them as a promotional mm-hmm. um, aspect but uh, um, but certainly it's not um, – uh, so certainly the smaller ones I think are less likely to have this kind of – like Linode I don't think probably has this kind of aggressive Yeah, I don't know. I, terminology. I doubt it. I, I really doubt the smaller ones, that, particularly ones that came more out of the community like Linode, which is really a commu- – like it came out of Linux user groups and so forth using, uh, using it. I thought it was fascinating that he mentioned that uh, he thinks that European law is going to drive some of this. Um, analysis because of the analysis over what's a derivative work and what isn't. I thought that was really interesting because maybe this is my U.S.-centric perspective because I'm based in the United States, but it does seem like often the U.S. law is what drives some of this discussion internationally. So uh, that was kind of... Yeah, we're going to hear people making reference to that very issue in later talks, certainly, uh, that, yeah. that issue of the U.S. driving it. But I think that when you look at, at – at, there's been more uh, – just to go back to GPL enforcement, which, which Gabe was, was sort of hinting at, that, that somehow this might be a GPL issue. Um, the, the enforcement in Germany has been more, more – uh, as far as lawsuits, there's been more lawsuits in Germany than anywhere around the world. Including the United States, right. so 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 in some sense on GPL, uh, Germany is leading the world because of Harold. Right. As far as far as lawsuits, I, I mean, I think we've I mean, just <laughs> just to uh, not to not to be competitive about it, but I think I think we've done more enforcement in the U.S., but we've done fewer lawsuits than Germany has. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, you know, I'm not sure actually. I mean, because I think that to some extent the licenses, many of them were drafted originally with U.S. law in mind, and then later adapted laws of other jurisdictions mm-hmm. so I think in that sense also US law is driving the issue yeah I mean it, well I mean my view is and we'll hear me commenting on this in later <laughs> in later talks that the burn convention uh, it, with with US being country of first publication and the place where the license is coming from burn convention sort of gives us a certain standard that says basically the 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 work can be interpreted the the legal issues can be interpreted under the local laws when right, it's right. just a country of per- first publication issue under burn uh, and signatories of burn I, I think speaks to enforceability around any burn convention country I mean at least that's the doctrine that that we've went with in free software and it's I think it's borne out to some extent um, that, that that works uh, the fact that how oh, I don't know I don't know that it's borne out. 
Why don't you think it is? I mean, why do you think that it is borne out? I mean, well, because you've got Harold enforcing I on a set of copyrights in in Germany from a work that that yeah. Germ- Germany wasn't the first country of publication, and you know. Well, sure, I think so. But what laws were applied, and what analysis was applied, and how would that? play out in other jurisdictions, especially when you have multiple publications and different versions and authors in different places. Well, you just use the local, the local copyright laws are, are, are usable for that. And mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I can imagine GPL having trouble in a country with no copyright law. So if you pick a country that has no copyright law, hasn't signed the Berne Convention. Oh, well, sure. And, sure, I, mean, sure. I, mean, sure I mean, I can always imagine that happening, but, but, but are there countries, are there countries where, uh, where you can do anything. I mean, there's corrupt countries, uh, small corrupt countries where horrible things are happening. Uh, are we going to worry about GPL enforcement there? It takes it take take countries in Africa where there's genocides yeah. going on. I don't think worrying about whether the GPL got enforced in that country is really the top priority in any sense of. Yeah, of but like, there are also there are some jurisdictions where uh, where copyright is not respected, where um, where you know the top. Actually, to be fair, the top problems in every country I can think of are potentially more important than uh, than copyright. True. So what I was actually going to say is, you know, if we, I guess what I want to say is that if we care about copyright in any jurisdiction, you know, we care about them in, in all, and you weigh the, the ills in society, um, you know, as best you can yeah, and work but, on things that but, need to but be right. But I mean, if you take a country where you have a corrupt government that's exterminating its people or something horrible like that, as, as happens in, in, in some cases, uh, if, that, if that government were violating the GPL, I don't think I would, um, I don't think I would have any specific concern about that, chasing that violation. You know, that, that regime is so corrupt anyway that they're killing people. Like, so they violated the GPL. You can say that about any country. Well, we have such societal wrongs all over the world tr- in true, every single country, and we're going to worry about copyright. Yeah, I, I, I mean, mean it's, that's such a. <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to be so aggressive about it, but well, I mean, the U.S. is not committing we, genocide anymore, right? So, I mean, so I mean, we're, we're at least we're not actively exterminating native peoples like we were a couple hundred years ago. So, yeah, but we have a lot of we don't have slavery anymore in the United States. We have plenty States, of societal yeah. ills here now. True. I true. mean, I, there are a lot of areas in society that if I had if I had the ability to just fix problems in a row, I'm not you know copyright would would be a little further down the list. Okay, I agree with that. I, I just I just think that, that in, in the... It just seems like a silly argument to me. I mean, we work on the things that we can work on and make a, a yeah. difference and improve things in the world and hope for the best. And sort of like well, bringing up that argument is tough. My point is, is that, is that if, if software freedom is being disrespected in a given jurisdiction, um, you sort of have to weigh that against other ills happening in that jurisdiction. Yes, there are ills in the U.S. There's problems with healthcare in the U.S. There's problems with poverty in the U.S. and so forth. But they're they're nowhere near as bad as they are in in other in some other jurisdictions. So it, it, it's where I mean I've often said this about software freedom that 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 you have to society has to get to a certain level of of non corruption, a certain level of of equity in in human existence for software freedom even to be on the map as an issue to worry about. Yeah. And I've always believed that, that that software freedom is not the the most important human rights issue. I believe it is a human rights issue, but it's not the same as, you know, you know, freedom of speech is not as important as uh as uh 
as as you know a, a right a right to to not be oppressed and 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 all those sorts of things. So so my, my point is is that in the jurisdictions where yeah, I don't oppression think we is so actually bad, disagree. I just yeah. I just you know just yeah. I think we both worry about this. You know the logical conclusion of of that rationale is truly that we should close up shop in working on free software and instead start working on causes that affect people's you know, people's oh, I, health and their frankly, you know, I've overall con- well-being. I considered that I was doing the wrong thing multiple times. Oh, right? me too. Uh, that, that I wasn't working on these other issues. Um, I think you can't, like, try to make the world a better place and not evaluate whether you are working on the best cause or not. That's yeah. happened to me very recently. There's a cause that I care very much about. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, it's actually somewhat selfish. Uh, and can I actually make a, a, a plug for it? It's not one of okay, these human rights issues. Actually, it's but it, it is what I consider to be very fundamental, which is that the Cooper Union is where I had my, um, where I got my undergraduate degree from in engineering, and it's the only, um, it's the only free as in no charge, um, university in the United States that's fully based on merit. It's an extraordinary institution, and uh, it's having financial issues, and it looks like it's going to have to start charging tuition unless, so a lot of donations come in very soon. So if you have some spare money and you're looking for a non-free software-related cause, uh, please uh, donate to the Cooper Union. It really having a place in the United States for secondary education that's, um, you know, completely free is uh, is huge. Well, that and that goes to a bigger ill in the United States that we don't get. Yeah, the right to education yeah. post post to high school is is doesn't exist in the United States, where it exists in most of Europe. Yeah, um, and that's that's it. That's that's sort of the more fundamental issue. And Cooper Union is a hack to try and solve that problem a little bit, um, which is now no longer functioning or, I mean, or it's might just not be a functioning. Hack. I mean, it's it's a it's a philanthropic institution. It's right. it's still functioning. It's just it's unclear whether. Uh, in September, when the new students come in, whether they'll be paying tuition or not, right. um, so. they haven't actually uh, issued acceptances yet because they're not sure what they're going to be able to yeah. do. And the art school, uh, last I checked, had basically said, "No, thank you. We'd rather mm-hmm. walk." I think Cooper Union should shut its doors before it charges tuition, mm-hmm. um, and it should take what resources it has and create, you know, uh, scholarship spots at an existing university by donating it what mm-hmm. it has. So even if it means there are only 10 spots, right? you know, like 10 students at NYU get a free education, it's worth it. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I, I, I think there's a certain, <laughs> amount of, uh, a certain amount of selfishness in my part to work on free software as an issue, mainly because I, my, my only thought of what I could do for other issues would be with the skills that I have uh, would be to take free software, try to convince non- other nonprofits in working in more urgent areas to to switch to free software because I, I thought for a while I was like I could just be like a sysadmin or something for some other nonprofit cause that's more of a high priority in culture and society. Um, the problem with that is that they would most likely already be running proprietary software and want me to support proprietary software, which I won't do. So then the next option is, well, you could try and get them to use free software which I, I think is a is an uphill battle, and then it comes back to well, we have to write certain free software for nonprofits, and and so that's what that's I've such tried a to problem do. Problem that we have. We well, really I, I'm to trying it. to work on it. I'm trying yeah. to work on it. It might be an announcement soon about 
how Conservancy is going to be trying to work okay. on that issue. So I can't pre-announce, but uh, I just did, but I'm not going to pre-announce beyond yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, 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 that that's an issue that I do think is valuable to try and make uh, free software that, that works for nonprofits, which does address this issue of helping other causes because other causes have NGOs that need software and we can help in that way. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I, I thought about whether I should go work for, say, an Amnesty International you know, when I got out of high school and that sort of thing um, because that's sort of the you know people being imprisoned yeah i think for their ideas is, is much worse than people using proprietary software i think yeah i think uh, i think we often sort of have that kind of crisis of identity to some extent but uh, but i think if you you know if you can work hard in a way that you can make the world a better place to the you know to the best of your abilities and maxing maximizing the skills that you have then i think that's that's sort of where i come back to especially you know in my medical devices work i feel like that's sort of you know, touches a place where I think a lot of people might not be able to. And so, you know, I feel like, and I feel like it's the same thing for you. If we're especially positioned to work on this issue, we should, we should do it because it's important. Um, even if they're, you know, fighting world hunger is, well, it was, is it was, and it was particularly nice issue. of you to, um, maybe nice isn't the right word, but to, to let your medical issue be something you used for a cause. And that's that really it really sucks. <laughs> well, it's it's rare that somebody's willing to do that because it's a personal issue, and that's that's really tough. I mean, it's sort of similar to what people do when when they've been a victim of a violent crime and and are willing to talk about that their victimness yeah, as a way to advocate. It seems rare, but at the same time, you know, all of the people who are advocating in this medical device safety sphere are people who have not all of them, but many of them are people who have devices or, you know, these implanted devices of some kind. I was, I think I'd mentioned this on the show before. I was once on a panel with, uh, I had an ICD and um, uh, two of the people I think had uh, had insulin pumps mm -hmm. and another one had, uh, had cochlear implants. Yeah, but if you count the number of people that have some sort of implanted mental device against the number of people working on this issue, I bet the percentage is really low. I bet the percentage is high relative to other other areas. Hmm. Okay. But, I, I, I don't know. I'm curious know. because I also know there was someone in the audience who wrote a paper who also has a, an implanted ICD or mm -hmm. that's like saying TCBY yogurt or ATM machine or pin number. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so we're, we're a little bit off topic from, from what Gabe uh, spoke about and, and so we should probably. Yeah. Try we're, to... we're far afield. But, but I, th Thank I think, you, Gabe. <laughs> well, I think I think that his uh, raising this issue—it's something we're gonna have to research further. Uh, and uh, you know, I wish he'd—I wish he'd actually gotten more active uh, earlier, uh, because if he's been studying this issue, it's—it's it's a major—it's a major issue that that needs to be looked at more carefully. Uh, I sort of got the impression that that he uh, so so I'll tell him now if he listens to this before I get a chance to write to him uh, that that. Yeah, I, I want to work with him to try and figure out if we have a serious problem here. I, I I have to admit that I think some of what he said was slightly alarmist, and I need to see a lot of backup documentation before I believe the situation is as dire as he presents it. Uh, but I was convinced from his talk that the situation is a serious issue that needs attention uh, with regard to GPL and, and terms of service and how they interact and, and do people have a right to the software that's on their VPS. If, if the situation is as complicated as, as he presented, even just a little bit as complicated as he presented, it needs attention. So I'm really glad he raised it. Uh, and yeah, uh, and, we'll, and we'll he, so, he sort of buried the lead in some sense because I had no idea from reading his proposal, no, I had no idea, I had no idea that, that, yeah. that this was what he was getting at because yeah. he, so he sort of 
of he sort of made the 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 proposal was cagey enough that that I was sort of like, well, what's I remember we discussed it when we were evaluating the proposal. Like, well, what's exactly is he talking about here? Yeah. Um, and it, it I mean, he, frank, uh, frankly, it, it was on right on the line of acceptance because we weren't sure. But if I, if it had been so, you know, if, if it had been a little punchier, like Amazon terms may in fact yeah, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or or VPS well, uh, hosting terms. Lawyer but, lawyer proposed talks yeah, often. Yeah. <laughs> might, contra- might contradict the requirements of GPL. This talk will present how those contradictions might occur. Like right. I, like that talk would have like flown to the top of the list. Yeah, totally. Um, well, hopefully we'll find out more about it. I'm, the, I'm so glad we accepted episodes. it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. So, I'm so glad we accepted the uh, the talk based on the on the more KG yeah, proposal sure. because it's so good that we got to hear this, and, and I hope our listeners will think about this issue and 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 go. I, I think the most important thing that individual yeah. users can do. The most important thing you can do really really read those terms and conditions. I, I think that's a point that Gabe's well, making here. If you're using one of these services, let us know what they say. Yeah, and 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 in this sense, actually NPR covered this. I'll try to find a link to the NPR story that was pretty good about about the the level and complexity of terms and conditions of websites. They were talking more about the Facebooks and the Twitters of the right. world. But the fact that people click, I agree to these things all the time. Yeah, you know, I when when I'm in a hotel room, I read the terms and conditions of the internet connectivity that I get. Mm-hmm. I, I open that and read it. And usually it says things like you can't run torrents and yep, you know, yep. and, and we reserve the right to turn you off immediately if yep, we don't like what yep. you're doing and all this you'd agree not to do anything illegal while on this and, and so forth. So so I mean it's usually saying things like that Sometimes and I agree it to says that. that you agree to not do anything immoral and it's sort of like what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, I actually have an, uh, an, outst- an outstanding um, uh, question that's never been answered from, uh, I actually had a lawyer look at this from the co- the, the cow working facility where I work. Um, they have some bizarre terms about the internet access in and, and that make no sense at all. And I actually had a lawyer look at them. Basically, the, the, the lawyer told me that, uh, this is before we had uh, Tony to do this sort of stuff at Conservancy. Uh, the lawyer said, well, well this, you know, th- this is so vague and confusing, it's probably unenforceable anyway. So we ended up agreeing to it. But then I sent them an email saying, we're agreeing to this, but this makes no sense. And if it's read strictly, it means this. We believe it means this. Can you clarify for us? And they never answered. Of course. And so so it's 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 a lot of it's poor drafting in some sense that the but that's most goes to my point of it's very difficult to get people to pay attention. This is a small company in New York that has six facilities, and they can't be bothered to check their to, to yeah. listen to a member who's complaining about the language or, or that's problematic in their terms. Um, now we we basically agreed that we have a such and a strong. And you have two defense. offices, but you only had one at the time. Well, I, well, I had one tiny one at the time, um, yeah. but uh, but the point is is that. It's um, it, it, we we basically came to a legal conclusion that it's that there that, that if it would be to read in the worst possible way they had they sort of couldn't couldn't argue um, and of course their their only remedy would be to evict us and we're sort of like well if we're evicted from a co-working facility it's really noisy what's you know what's the big deal <laughs> um, you know, oh they, you like it there yeah um, it's I like that it's cheap for conservancy and that our uh, office space blind item is not relatively high. conveniently located well, convenient located but uh, in other convenient located places are so much more expensive uh, right, you know, right, it's, right and it's very hard to get a sink this is a hard problem right right, right. i never i never thought about this but getting like a sink area for it to like wash it's dishes very convenient if you work from your couch uh, yeah true but uh, <laughs> the, the problem is then you have ergonomics uh, issues that's true, actually. My back is killing me. Right yes, now. you need to be more careful. I've been telling everybody this. People, people are telling me, oh, I love working on my couch. I keep telling people ergonomically it's not a very particularly good option because the way people type from couches. Yeah, I've been trying bad. to fix that, like my posture on my couch. Well, the problem is where, what angle are your wrists at? That's what I'm worried about. 
Right, but I'm actually more worried about my back right now. But I'm worried about your wrists. Okay, thank you. Because that's the long-term problem. <laughs> that's the problem you might not be paying attention to. Right. Please use ergonomics when typing. Uh, we encourage all our listeners to do that. And we encourage our listeners to read these terms and conditions in terms of service. And if you find something, if you have a terms and conditions... Uh, or terms of service for some service you use. Um, obviously, we already know Facebooks and Twitters are horrible, I and mean, that's that's a given. Um, but if you find, and, and some of Google's aren't great either. Um, but if you find one that's sort of one we haven't mentioned, or one that that's sort of new to you, or something that you find a term that's really kind of nasty, email us and and let us know, and 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 we'll maybe talk uh, an email about it or talk about it on the show or talk with Gabe about it if we if we get him on to do a follow-up about this issue uh, because I, I think that's that's the big issue is people aren't reading these in details yeah. and I'm, I'm grateful for Gabe to go deep into the Amazon ones and, and analyze them yeah definitely and it sounds like he's analyzed ones other than Amazon as well um, yep so maybe we'll do a follow-up show so uh, well th th thanks uh, we hope you enjoyed that talk and there's there's more talks coming in future episodes see you then Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. <laughs> I was waiting for you to see. You always have to. You, the rule is you always say something before you start.